0: Hear the word of the Lord. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. God of all mercy and all grace, giver of life and light, giver of your word, giver of truth, we pray that you would speak to us by the power of your spirit this morning, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. You know, uh, at our house, we've had this heat pump that um, has, in the three years that we lived in our house, this heat pump is broken Uh, and needed a repair person to come out every year for the last three years. And just last week, we've had to have someone come out, um, three times and it's been little things here, there leaks, things that have to get patched and replaced. But at the end of the day, um, the reality is I'm just buying time until I'm going to have to bite the bullet and replace the whole thing. In fact, I was actually told that I need to do that a couple days ago, um, super exciting. But, but the reason why I'm going to have to replace it because it's old. At the end of the day, all the patches and repairs that they've made on this heat pump of mine are, are temporary fixes. And the truth is, since the Genesis 3, since the fall that happened in the garden, uh, the world is a bit like my heat pump. How's that for a segue into the story of Lot? Um, it can't just be fixed by duct tape. Um, it, it needs more than just replacement parts. Eventually, Even our world and everything in it actually needs to be made new. And if if you think uh, about just the opening stories in Genesis um, and how we've gotten here to to chapter 19, I I think that Genesis as a whole is actually meant to reveal this truth to us. Just the inability for the world to to just right itself, to fix itself. I mean, think about these stories. And think about the story of Noah, which our story with Lot resembles in many ways. The world was full of wickedness. So the Lord finds Noah, says, I'm gonna take you and your family and we're gonna start over. Like a second Adam, right? A new garden, he plants. So all the wicked people, they all get destroyed. And Noah and his family are all that's left. And what happens? Well, as soon as Noah can, he, he plants a vineyard, gets drunk, and is found naked in his tent. Um, wickedness grows again from the earth. And then, uh, then you have stories like Sodom, this another wicked place that the Lord wipes off the map. Lot is saved with his family, but on the other side of Sodom, what do we find? Another story, kind of like Noah's story, only worse, I would say. One of the things this tells us is that you can't just remove yourself from society and create a a better world any more than duct tape can keep my heat pump from leaking. You know, and there's been various trends throughout Christendom, throughout the the years and the history of the church, where Christians, they think that all we need to do is is run away, retreat from society, and then, then we can create that perfect world um, and set up our own city. Everything's going to be right, and we can govern it with righteousness, and then, and then the Lord will come, and, and it'll be swell. Uh, but as someone once said, you know, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence because I'm not there to mess it up. Um, because the problem in the world is not just something that's out there. For honest, the problem with the world is something that lives inside of each of us. As the great G.K. Chesterton famously said to a newspaper article that poses this question, What's wrong with the world? and he replies, I am. Because what he's getting at is that unless we can be fixed, unless the problems that lie within ourselves can be fixed, there actually is no hope for the world to be fixed. And I think that's what this narrative of Genesis is getting at here. That uh, this this book of our beginnings is trying to teach us this great truth that you cannot just escape your problems, because we are very much part of this problem because of our father Adam. We are born into this world, born in sin. We call this original sin. That we can't just escape this on our on our own. The, the only fix is a world made new with a new Adam that we have to be born into and through, and a new garden to expand around the world. And uncomfortable as in. As uncomfortable as passages like this are, passages about uh, incest, I think as we explore it in the backdrop of everything else that's happening throughout Genesis and Scripture, I think we're going to see two things. First, that we can't escape the problems of this world. We can't just run from them because they inevitably will follow us. Uh, And secondly, I I think we're going to find that the world can only be fixed by being made new. The world can only be fixed by being my need. So, first, we can't escape the problems of this world. I think this is one of those things that people constantly think, no, nah, no, but trust me, if I just moved um, to Idaho, all my problems are going to be fixed. Um, if I just get a different house, if I just get a different wife, if I just get a different husband, if I just get a different job, if my kids would just listen to me. Um, no, you guys are good. Uh, if, but, you know, if these things just change, then then we're gonna be um, all right. But the sin of this world can't just be something that is just escaped. Because if it didn't work for Noah when his family uh, went through what they went through, uh, then it's not gonna work for us either. And you see this, this repeating, this truth happening here. So the way the story goes is, right, they just escaped the destruction of Sodom, it was destroyed. Tells us Lot's fearful, doesn't really tell us why. Maybe this this town is wicked. Maybe he's worried that they heard about Lot and his escape and they're gonna blame him for it and get mad at him. We're not told, but he's fearful. And so he's living up alone in a cave. I'm sure it's a nice cave. Um, And then this happens in verse 31 to 33. It says, And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father's old and there's not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth come let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. This is a, not a fun story to meditate on and read. Um, they may have escaped Sodom but Sodom is still alive and well within them. Uh, the wickedness of Sodom is stuck to them. It's like a, like a tick that you catch on a trail. It follows them into the cave. They couldn't escape this wickedness. So why do they do this? Why, why, what's happening here? Well, remember what happened in Sodom with Lot and his daughters. Remember what these daughters saw their father do to them. Remember that? he He offers them to the mob that's knocking at the door, trying to get to these visitors that are visiting him. And he says, no, protect the visitors. You can have my daughters and do whatever you want with them. Think about how that might have affected them to see their father do that to them. Uh, This isn't something that just one forgets and moves on from and is unaffected by. I mean, think about the role of the father in general. The father is there to protect the home to keep the the evildoers at bay, to lay down his life for the sake of his family. And when Lot was fearful for his life, what did he do the opposite? He let someone devour his family so that he could be free, so that he could be safe. Think about how that might have messed with these girls' vision of what life is all about how this might have affected their sense of their relationship with their father and his role in their life. Instead of protecting them and their sexuality, he offers them up to be abused. And you know, sexual abuse in general is not the kind of thing that you just talk to a counselor once about and then poof, you're fixed and all the trauma from that situation goes away. Uh, It's the kind of thing that weighs down one's soul when people that are meant to protect use their position to harm instead, it causes domino effects of fear and dysfunction in one's life. And if I can delicately walk into the subject for a moment, um, the stats would tell us that even in rooms like this, one in 10 in this room have probably been sexually abused in the life. And there's probably many of you that have never told anybody, anybody at all about what's happened to you. Um, uh, and many others in this room maybe it's not sex abuse, there's other types of abuse, have been uh, experienced severe power abuses in your life. And each, each instance of those kind of places where, where comfort and joy and rest are robbed from you, because those abuses happen in places that are meant to bring you comfort and joy and rest and security. And when those abuse happens, it robs those things from you. And when those things are robbed from you, they're replaced with fear, distrust, despair, when it happens, it messes with us, it messes with our souls, it messes with our, with our hearts. And it takes a long time of dedicated work to work through these traumas. And uh, we see the direct effects of this kind of trauma in this story this morning with these girls. As one commentator points out, that this, this act that happened um, with Lot and his daughters earlier in, in Genesis 19 is the act that opens the door for them to act wickedly against their father here. If he's willing to give us to others to protect him, himself, then I guess sex is just a transactional thing that I can use to get whatever I want. In this principle, you see this profound thing that sin begets sin begets sin. Right? And even their, their reasoning for doing this is they want to preserve their line, which in, in and of itself is a good thing to want, but, uh, but they pursue it in evil means, and they're saying, listen, I need an heir. And since my father was willing to, to turn us over to protect himself, I guess we can use him to protect us, to get a family. You now is everything in this time because once their father dies, these girls are gonna be left with, with no one to protect them. So I actually understand their, their desire for having, a, having other uh, uh, sons that can get married, that can protect them and care for them once their um, father dies. But they use him to protect themselves, to get a family pursuing selfish desires and you know, when we pursue selfish desires, it never ends well. The fruit is always rotten. Even, even if it looks good for a moment, sin will always beget more sin. And this is actually what you see here when, when both daughters end up with sons. We're told their names are Moab and ben Moab is a name that means from father. ben is, is a name that means son of my people. They're kind of on the nose for names, right? They weren't even ashamed of their actions. They named their kids after their actions. And you know, as an aside, for all the pregnant women in the room, if you're looking for a biblical name, I don't, I suggest you look elsewhere other than these two names. I don't know if you've ever seen people like, it's like they just randomly open a Bible and pick out a name. It's like, oh, Judas. Yeah, I'll name my kid Judas. It's like, well, no. Don't name your kids after these children because these children become fathers to some of Israel's greatest enemies. Uh, and the Moabites and Ammonites, known for the worship of of Baal and other gods, and sacrificing children and wicked sexual practices. Practices sin begets sin begets sin. And this story is tragic. And actually, in Deuteronomy 25, the Moabites are mentioned again. And there's a story about it's uh, it's a wild story about the Israelites. Uh, uh, intermingling sexually with the Moabites again, and it was so bad that they actually killed everyone who had been laying with the Moabites to cut out this plague of wickedness from spreading. Another Sodom-esque situation. It's a wild, tragic story. The destruction of Sodom was justified and right for God to do, but even that can't stop the sins of Sodom from spreading. It slows it down for a bit. Maybe mitigates the, the the rate of spread, but it can't fully stop it. I think this is one of the things that causes us to dis- despair when we look at stories like this, because it's easy to look around the world to see the chaos, to see all the problems, to see the struggles, and lose hope. We can feel like, hey, listen, I think the war is lost, evil's winning, it's about to, to win. It's easy to look at you know at your own lives and say, we well, see the the wickedness and abuses that you've experienced, or maybe that you caused towards others, and you wonder, is there any hope? For healing, or am I just going to struggle to trust and, and be close to anyone ever again? And in you know, and in this state, we we can resort to just this bunker down mentality that says, you know, we just got to hold on. I can't fix anything. Why even bother? I'm just going to try to put my head down, live the life, and just not worry about it, and just know that everything's sad. And you retreat from the world. You retreat from relationships, and you don't even try, and you just. Stay surfacy with everybody in your life so you don't get hurt again. Friends, this is not the picture that God paints for his people to, to search after. You know, if you look in elsewhere in the Old Testament, even when um, the people of God were in their worst moments, in exile, out of the land, uh, living in, in Babylon or Assyria, uh, god's prophets come and give some of the most comforting words to their people when they're in exile, living in their darkest moments. You know, in, in, in Babylon, Jeremiah tells the remnant left there to work for the peace of the city. He says, "You know, the shalom of the city is your shalom. Work for it. Work for it. Work for the peace of the city. Marry the woman, have families. Work for their peace. Um, this is a land where, a foreign land where they worship foreign gods. which is not a happy time for the Israelites. Some of the darkest Psalms were written. When the, when the Israelites were on the way to Babylon, they said, you know, blessed are the ones who dash these children of the Babylon's against the rocks, you know? It's pretty dark stuff. It's not a happy place. And yet God said, no, here's where you're gonna flourish. There's a remnant of people I will provide for you. Flourish. God puts his people to work to push back against the darkness and despair. And, and the prophets in those moments, what do they do? They, they give hope to these people in this time to say work for good, for the good of the city and it'll be good for you. And then they point forwards to this future day. And Jeremiah, he he talks about the new covenant that is coming, something more permanent is coming, not just a temporary fix, but I'm actually gonna fix your hearts, Jeremiah tells us. I'm gonna give you hearts of flesh. I'm gonna bring someone who can bind up your wounds, someone who can heal the most tender parts of your soul, someone that has the power to redeem the most wicked abuses and turn places of mourning to places of joy. And that's the promise that we have in the Old Testament, is that this person will come and he will fix all things. And I know this is, this is the kind of talk of hope that we get in Advent that can sound too good to be true at times. Like telling someone in the middle of a dark tunnel, "This, if you just keep walking, you're gonna see light. It's easy to tell someone when they're in the middle, miles away from seeing light. Um, but we walk with hope. And there is nothing truer in all the world that what I'm saying to you now about the hope that we have in Christ, that he will come and renew and remake all things. This is what the season of Advent is meant to point us towards. He's, Jesus is the birth of hope itself, the long-awaited Messiah who comes not just with temporary fixes, uh, but he comes to root out the sin in this world and bring about a new creation that will never decay again. This is what we find here and the secondly, is that the world must be remade. The world must be remade. You know, and um, the story that we have before us in Genesis 19 is not a story that ends with much hope. Um, Now, this is the last time Lot is a character in the Bible. He's mentioned other places, but this is his last scene. Uh, And then the pages turn and we're back to Abraham in in Genesis 20. Um, But for the reader that's reading this, what it does do is it creates a longing for hope. A longing for renewal, a longing for a world where things like this don't happen anymore, uh, for a world where this stuff doesn't happen, and and this is precisely why Jesus comes, and and so we're going to look in other places in the Bible to to fill this out to what this is pointing us to. But I, first, I'm going to jump over to the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 65. Uh, this is a profound um, section of scripture. Uh, It says this, this is verses 17 to 22, Isaiah 65, 17 to 22. Listen to this future hope that we're promised. It says this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Think about that for a second. Think about the things in your life that you've done or that are done to you that haunt you, that you wish you could forget but you can't. There will come a day when those things won't even come into your mind. What a a beautiful promise. He continues, but be glad and rejoice forever. So it's not just that that stuff's gonna leave, but it's gonna be replaced with joy and gladness forever, unceasing, in which I create. He's creating new. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I'll rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young men shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat for like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. What a beautiful picture of what is before us. This, there is coming a place with no mourning, no death, no robbing of land. I love how this actually tends to address many of our worries, our day-to-day worries. What, what, are, we, what are the things you worry about that you talk about on the dinner table? You talk about work, how tiring it is, how you're underpaid, underappreciated, amen. Amen. Uh, David, except for David, David is overpaid and overappreciated. it's not true. You're, you're just, you're just rightly appreciated and paid. Um, but when you talk about that, we talk about our worry over our children, right? Are our children going to do well? Are they going to, they're sick They're They're struggling here or there. We, we worry about our children. We worry about the aging, our aging parents. These are all the things we worry about. And one day we will never have to worry about any of that again. This is the work that he's come to do. This is what awaits us. Jesus is coming to to do this, and this is not merely a future reality. But this is work he is coming and doing right now. This is one of the harder things for us to believe. I think it's easy for us to at least believe that one day this will happen, but this is actually happening now. He is doing this work now, and he invites his people alongside to work with him towards this future. A couple of New Testament passages help glimpse this for us. One is a beautiful one in Galatians 4, 4 through 7, says this, speaking of Jesus, his coming. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. I love this passage, in the fullness of time, God waited to send his son until the fullness of time had come. And sometimes people wonder, well, why didn't he send him earlier and just stop all this from happening poorly? The only answer I can give to you as to why that is, is because of God and his perfect will and timing waited until the fullness of time had come. And like any good story, it's in the darkness of night that the light shines the brightest and in the darkness and silence after the end of the Old Testament, after the last prophet in the Old Testament is Malachi, is 400 years between then to, to Matthew 1. Uh, in that silence and in that darkness, Jesus comes, born under the law. It's the perfect hero's story. After generations of failure, Jesus comes on the scene to live the righteous life, that he might free us from the law. You now Romans tells us, that this Jesus who came is the second Adam. He has come to recreate the world. He has come to make all things new, to guarantee and do that stuff that Isaiah 65 was talking about. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we're called to be born again. We're born again into this new Adam. We're, we're, We're born again out of the old Adam, putting away the 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 sin that we're born into, born to decay under the law, and we're being born into Christ, being born into Him, being freed from the duties of the law. And Paul tells us that this makes us new creations. You know, when Paul calls us new creations in 1 Corinthians, he doesn't say you you will become a new creation one day. No, it's past tense. It says you are a new creation, you have become. It's a powerful truth. You have been remade. If you have been recreated through Christ by faith, the thing that you needed most has already been done to you. You know, the the implications of this is that this truth isn't merely a future hope, but there's some of this future hope that we actually get to experience now. But you may protest. Well, Craig, that sounds ridiculous to say. Uh, Are you blind? How could you say that we're experiencing this now when we still attend funerals, when we still experience abuses, when we still struggle with besetting sins, when people uh, die young, when our land is stolen from us, when we don't get to experience the fruits of our labors? This is where I think there's a helpful advent theological term that's used to help us navigate this curious reality that we live in, and it's called the now and not yet reality of life. Now and not yet. This is, I think the heart of the Advent season is leaning into this now and not yet, that we have the hope of the resurrection life now. We are We are new creations now. We are righteous in Christ now, born again, righteous saints, holy ones, But there's also elements of this new creation order that is still not yet because sin sin still exists in the world and we experience the effects of sin and that the kingdom uh, has has not been able to fight against yet. The kingdom has come in Christ but it's not fully spread around the world. The church still has work to do and so there's gonna be days where you don't feel new creation-y, right? You feel very old creation-y and tired. We don't always feel like saints and holy ones because we don't always act like saints and holy ones. Um, But because Jesus has come into this world, because he has died and, and risen from the dead, this is true of you. In a sense, we are all living in the not yet reality. We are living the not yet reality within a, a sinful world. It's like our is our not perfectly in phase with this world. Like, have you ever seen any of those cool time traveling shows or movies? It's like that person's kind out of out of phase and there's some dissonance at times. Uh, because the reality that's coming, we are in, but we don't live in it in this world just yet. And as Jesus conquered the gate grave, he marks this, this beginning of this kingdom, which means the, the beginning of his reign when he is slowly but surely bringing all creation uh, under, under, his, under his rule, uh, spreading his reign, where he's spreading his, his garden, so to speak, until one day it covers the world. So Jesus is this new Adam. this new garden that is planted and spreading is the church. which you know maybe that feels underwhelming to you, but it is the church that is this mustard seed that, that even hell can't stand against, although there's different other branches need to be pruned and cleaned off at, at times. It is the church that our new Adam is faithfully multiplying across the world until one day the whole earth will be filled with his glory. Which means that we, as new creations, are invited into his work uh, to help spread this kingdom until the whole earth is filled. Which means we, as people, don't have to cower in the face of sin, but we can confront it. We can call it out in the church, outside the church. Oh, this, is, this shows us that our work here matters. Or we aren't just people who put our heads down and mope, but we're people who pick up the shovel and start digging when there's work that needs to be done because our work is eternal. It's a profound thing that we're invited into. And This is what Advent teaches us, is that the sin and darkness, those strong, do not win. Those, there's times where they seem more powerful. The light of Christ shines brightest in the darkness. Even in our own lives, the sins that we've experienced, the sins that maybe you're experiencing now, they do not win. And you can courageously face them and and share your story and seek help because this is true because your story does not end with sin, with shame, with struggle, but your story ends with glory. There might be some death in the meantime, just like what Jesus did to die to rise again. We have lots of deaths in our life. We have to die to things to rise again on the other side, but that is what our, our story ends with, is glory. With life, the resurrection. Because Jesus has come into the world to make all things new. He has defeated sin and death. We can walk with him into even the darkest parts of our souls with courage, not because of our strength, but because Jesus conquered even those places and brings resurrection life into those places. And his light is a light that never burns out, but he shares with you and with me. May we be a place that joins Jesus in the binding of, of wounds and the spreading of the kingdom and may we be a church that's a city on a hill and a light to world and to all creation experience recreation and sin is no more. Pray with me. God of mercy, God of grace, we give you be thanks for your holy word We pray that you would speak to us, your people, that your spirit would bind our wounds, that you'd help us lean into the new creation that you've created within us, and that even in the presence of darkness, that we would hold fast to the light that you have promised to your people. Continue to use us to spread your kingdom wherever we are found. In Christ's name we pray, amen.